Uh, I know it's not easy to get here um, every Sunday morning. Even for those who live here, sometimes it isn't easy to get here. Um, there's no pressure for you to come here. Uh, no one's going to judge you. There's no punishment for not being here. Um, so it has to come from here, somewhere. Um, there's, nobody's going to chase you down, arrest you if you don't get here. Um, so there's something, something uh, to, to motivate you to, to be here. And um, it's interesting to consider what, what's happening there. And part of my sense is that um, there is a deep nature to us, we call it Buddha nature, that calls us. It's calling us all the time. Um, and we're responding to it by coming here and sitting together. And you're responding to it when you practice just being. Um, and in, in a sense, you're also coming, whether you know it or not, uh, to sit for all beings, not just for yourself. And that can be a very powerful motivation, even though you may not be aware of it. Because if you ask yourself, why do I go to Oan? What am I, what am I sitting for? It's not just for self-improvement. There's, this is requiring an effort that is beyond that. So I'm, I invite you to consider the sense in which you are actually sitting, not just for yourself, but for your families, for your loved ones, for animals, for the sky, for the moon, uh, for all things that are alive. So... In speaking for all beings, I thank you. Um, thank you for, for being here. So, um, I thought I was done with the third precept last week uh, when I spoke about um, the precept uh, against sexual misconduct and the positive form of that, which is to cultivate faith, faith, be faithful in relationships. Um, but like many of the precepts, once you begin to examine it um, more deeply, it becomes more complex, um, uh, ha having more dimensions to it. And that certainly was the case uh, when I began thinking of this Dharma talk. Uh, oh, let's move on to the fourth precept. Uh, but I couldn't help but re revisiting uh, this third precept. And by, this reminded me, in, in giving a Dharma talk, um, there's a, a story about a, like a six-year-old girl, little girl, who asks her mother, who is a university professor, 
she says, Mom, what, what do you do every day when you go to the university? And her mom responds, well, I'm a member of the art department, and I teach people how to draw and how to paint. And her daughter, astonishingly, just has a surprised look on her face, and she says, you mean they forgot? <laughs> and when, when I think about giving talks, it's, it's almost as if... Um, we, this is something we already know. We somehow forgot it. And so I'm just giving a talk, reminding everybody of what they already know uh, that we shouldn't have forgotten in the first place. I just, we sh- should just naturally know how to draw and paint, like every kid knows. Um, so, in a way, giving a talk is not giving you any information. <laughs> or teaching you anything that you don't already know. And the same is true for me. When I begin to examine uh, what I'm going to talk about, it's just, I already know this. Uh, But I don't realize that until I begin trying to understand it. And I actually think that each one of you should have to give a Dharma talk (laughs) on each of the precepts, because then you would really understand them a lot better. So I'm, I'm really being quite selfish in giving talks because those talks really help me to, to, to deepen my understanding of the subject of the talk. And I think those of you who have given talks would verify that. Um, so anyway, um, we're not done with the third precept. Uh, at least I'm not done. Uh, but I, I want to expand the understanding of that precept, which tends to be limited to sexual activity, and use that uh, sexual activity as a symbol for all very, very powerful emotions. The sex drive which we all have to varying degrees depending on how, how our bodies work and how old we are. Um, it's a very, very powerful drive. And like all powerful emotions, for example, like fear, like anger, and even like... Um, Ignorance, desire, those are often talked about, the three poisons, desire, aversion, and ignorance. Um, These are very powerful feelings in us. So when we're angry, when we're frightened, and when we have a drive to possess or to express our sexuality... Those drives, those emotions can overwhelm us. And that is where our practice kind of kicks in. What happens when we are overwhelmed by those strong emotions is that we lose clarity. We lose a sense of being 
fully present to what is actually happening in front of us. And we're consumed by a personal drive. Our anger has to be expressed. Our fear has to be expressed. Our sexual, sexual drive, has, our desire must seek instant gratification. So we, are, we become a sort of slave to those strong emotions. And that's what these strong emotions do. They try to um, colonize us. They, they overwhelm us. And as they do that, we begin, I, I should say the ego begins, a narrative of justification. And that story that we begin, that kicks in, I really want this person, or I really have to stay away from this, this situation, I'm terrified, or I'm so angry about this, and then the, the story begins, the ego story of justifying, acting on those emotions. And that's where we get, we get into the area of suffering, and suffering others suffer as well because we lose our clarity. Last week I talked about pornography as a form of objectification of the human body and usually of the female body, but it's not limited to that. The male body can be objectified too, reduced, and so do children's bodies can be reduced. And even animals, animals can be reduced, can be objectified. So we lose a sense of the fullness of these beings in the service of our own self-centered drive. So we are powered by that emotion and everything in our way or everything that would satisfy that emotion gets swept up into our self-centeredness, our ego story. This happens in many forms. For example, when a farmer sits up in an air-conditioned tractor and is plowing the earth and listening to... Oh, what... Um, on his Bluetooth is listening to uh, The Grateful Dead. <clears throat> I'm dating myself, I guess. Um, that farmer has no connection with the earth. It's just completely abstracted from that connection and is kind of the ruler of, of his or her world, just in their tractor, completely absorbed in the Grateful Dead singing and in the air-conditioned cabin of that tractor and losing connection with what he or she is really doing. Similarly, the people who, who, for example, operate drones and drop bombs on populations, they don't have to see the people dying. They're sitting in their control room just operating the... I was talking about that as a form of pornography. 
This is strange to think of it that way. But it's a form of reducing life, and this connects to the first precept, in a sense killing the fullness of life, of what you're connecting with. And we can do this um, in many, many ways. That is, not really seeing the fullness of what's in front of us, but only sort of zooming in to that narrow aspect of a person or an experience that satisfies us. That satisfies our strong emotional drive. We can do this with a, we do this with other people. We reduce them to their roles or their the way they can satisfy our needs. Actually, this has been done with Zen practice. Zen has become what is it? Zen cereals and Zen Zen lipstick. <laughs> and Zen decorations, and in other words, Zen, our practice becomes just a commodity, a fad that people like to parade. Oh, I'm a Zen Buddhist, or I, I wear this thing, and, you know, it's some kind of a badge. It's a commodity of some sort, and that's a reduction that's, that's, almost, that's a kind of pornographic act. You can do this with yourself, too. You can, you can objectify yourself and see yourself just as a certain, in a certain role or as a certain kind of being and reduce yourself and not see yourself, as I spoke last week. A Zen priest is not supposed to get depressed. And so I feel tremendously guilty and somehow inhuman if I'm depressed because a Zen priest should be so enlightened that depression doesn't affect, affect me. That's a form of reduction of the self where you're not permitting the fullness of your being to be expressed. And so... When these strong emotions drive you, when you feel they're uncontrolled, how does our practice, how does our practice serve us in that situation where we lose clarity, where we act blindly? I sometimes think of, of this in my own experience as a kind of blind spot. When I'm angry or when I have a strong drive of fear or attraction to someone, it's, it's as if I, I go blind. And I act out of that blindness. And that is where our practice helps us. Because our practice is about becoming aware. When you sit down on your cushion... You are stopping that blind activity. You're practicing stopping just for an instant. I, I know that, <laughs> I just, it occurred to me that um, 
when you do maple syruping, which I used to do many years ago, for 40 gallons of sap, you get one gallon of syrup. For all the practicing that we do of awareness, you get one second of, oh, of stopping. Just stopping and, okay, do I really want to do this? One second after years and years of practice, believe me, emotions are very, very powerful. And we have to, we practice diligently in order to stay present and see what's actually going on before we act, before we act blindly, before we're driven, enslaved by those strong feelings. <clears throat> so the antidote to this drive that we all experience is to internally I'm going to sit down on my cushion I'm just going to sit down on my cushion for one second and look as a kid I remember Stop, look, and listen. You ever learn that when you're crossing the street? Stop, look, and listen. So, our practice. Stop, look, listen, listen. And then act skillfully. Out of that, we can, out of that awareness comes skillful, wholesome action. Sometimes it's put, we're in a situation and we are dominated by all kinds of strong, dynamic, emotional activity and we just step back a quarter of an inch all we need or just open up a tiny crack what is it Leonard Cohen's song um, there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in so Matt and I, uh, uh, Max and I are really into Leonard Cohn that's a wonderful lyric um we're cracked. There's a crack in all of us. But that's what lets the light in. That's... So we use that crack to open into the light. And so we just... This is what we're doing here. This is exactly what we're doing here, is practicing taking a quarter of an inch of a step back. And knowing that the world is not going to collapse if we just stop for a minute and check, check it out. 
ask ourselves, hmm, do I really want to do this? Last week, um, I was needing some help uh, in running the, the service, and I emailed Nikolai, and um, you had a real dilemma there, didn't you? He had something he really wanted to do, which I'm certain you did, right? Mm -hmm. You did go up to the yoga on the mountain mm -hmm. thing. But you expressed, God, I have a real problem. I want to help you, Mado, but I also want to do this thing with my friends. And, and I think you said, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time making this decision. And then you said, this, I think something like, this is the real test of practice. <laughs> and then it turns out that Michael volunteered to serve as Doan. And I wrote back to Nikolai saying, it's easy for you now, Nikolai. <laughs> and you didn't show up. <laughs> so, but then I said, well, maybe it isn't so easy. So I don't know whether you got the meaning of that. But the question is, when you don't have to do something, when there isn't a precept for it, then what? Then how do you act? So it's really hard to make those kinds of decisions. Um, I remember as a college student, and it was a long time ago, um, I always, I don't know whether you do this, kind of make lists of for and against. Should I go out and party with my friends and these are all the reasons I should do that and on the other side should I sit home and study and these are the reasons I should do that and then you you know compare them and and say well how what should I decide to do decisions are very very difficult this is what the precepts are about they're extremely difficult so it's not surprising that it was difficult for you um, and Usually it comes out, well, I should sit home and study. I should go and help Mado because that's what my higher self tells me I should do. But what do we usually do? We usually go out and party with our friends. That's where the strong emotion kicks in. Um, so we, this is the dilemma that we all have. You know, how do, how do we make, what do we decide to do? How do we, on what basis do you make your decisions? On what basis do you make your decisions? And there, these precepts are, in a way they're useless when it comes to situations like everyday situations. Um, and that's why as you continue to practice, and as you continue to explore these precepts, skillful and wholesome decisions become second nature. That is, you don't have to constantly be 
like the <laughs> there's another metaphor of the donkey who starved between two bales of hay. <laughs> well, this one looks juicier. Well, this one looks like there's a little more hay in there. Well, this one has some seeds in it. Well, this one, uh, this one seems to be old and rotting. And I back and forth and back and forth. And you starve. You're paralyzed because you can't just decide. And in our practice, do it. And don't wobble. And after a while, you see things so clearly. Your practice has become so clear that you don't have to, you don't have to struggle with which bale of hay. It, it, you just see it. Now, this is rare. But it happens often enough to convince me that our practice works. This is, this is, this is not a theor- theoretical, uh, this is not about philosophy. This is about ways in which to relieve our suffering. And it has to work. And if it doesn't work, it's not worth pursuing. And I guess I'm here to testify that it works. Uh, and I think each of you can probably testify to that as well. So I'll give you one last example. This, this happened before my practice really matured. Not that it's particularly matured at this point, but it seems to have ripened in some way. Um, I was at a... Um, professional conference, the American Philosophical Society, which I'm sure many of you attend conferences from your careers and professions. And we were at a dinner um, in the evening, and just at different tables, um, people from different areas of the country were grouped at different tables and I was at the time I was teaching at Skidmore College and so I was with people from upstate New York and was just talking and chatting with everyone and I was sitting next to a fellow who was from Albany, University of Albany, University of New York at Albany and taught philosophy there and he was telling me about his life and he had six children and had a very wonderful uh, job at the university, and we were just chatting about our careers and our <clears throat> our publications and that, that sort of thing. And the dinner was over, and we were um, going up to our rooms. We went into an elevator and going up to our rooms, and it was just me and him. And he looked at me and he said, "I want to sleep with you." <laughs> Well, I knew this sort of thing happened at conferences, but I didn't, I don't know, I'd never had any experience like that before. Um, And my immediate response was, no. I didn't have to think about it. 
he was an attractive man. Um, I knew these kinds of things went on at conferences. He was married with six children. I was married with one child. And afterwards, <clears throat> I was kind of surprised at myself for having such an immediate response. And I didn't have to go into you're married or I'm married or this is not appropriate or there was just something in me that knew, no, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So not to say that you shouldn't have gone <laughs> to yoga on the mountain, but what if when you got that email, you immediately say, yes, Mado, of course, of course. And as you knew, this was the test of practice. So this is what it comes down to. So you knew that in some deep way. But you didn't act on it. And now maybe you would have. I don't know if, if Michael hadn't volunteered. So I don't know how that might have turned out. I'm sorry to use you. <laughs> is that okay? Okay. I mean, you didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, it just struck me as a good example of our everyday struggles to sort of do somehow what we know. How many times I've, I've said to myself, I know this is wrong. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's the ego. That's, that's the ego. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. Do it. That's the ego, egging, egoing on, egoing us on, egging us on. Yeah, do it. You can do it. You can get away with it. And especially when nobody's looking or when we're excused. When we feel we've been excused, then we don't have to do it. So I know this is not particularly on sexual misconduct, although it, it arises out of that, um, that precept, which deals with very, very powerful drives, uh, and they can take many, many forms. So uh, before, we, before we make ourselves suffer, and other people suffer, and other beings suffer, take that one quarter inch back, Take that one second because this is what the precepts teach us and this is what our practice teaches us. If we do something unskillful that creates suffering, then it becomes easier to do it again. And when we do it again we are in some sense normalizing it. And then when we do it again because it feels normal, then we establish a habit. And that begins to develop our character, habit, our habits and our patterns. And once we have a habit, we can move on to an addiction. Each step of the way becomes more difficult to intervene. 
So our practice is we can intervene by sitting down on our cushion just for one second, taking that quarter an inch step backward. But it's much easier to do that when the first impulse arises. Then it becomes harder once we normalize it, once we habituate it, once we are addicted to it. And so we can, we can become we can become addicted to anything, anything. And our practice is a way of helping us reduce that suffering that is created by habits that are, are being driven by these strong emotional actions.